I'm uh, Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you here this morning. Glad you made the choice to come out and be with God's people, be in His presence, worship God. Amen? Amen. Okay, so today we're going to do something different. Um, we, I love Q&A times. Uh, we, we've been trying to integrate that into the messages here the last year or so, uh, just to give folks a chance to ask questions. And, and to me, it's, it's, it's just so fun. The unpredictability of it I, is, is awesome. Uh, but I'm, I'm, unfortunately, you know, I get anointed and I get long-winded and I don't leave room at the end of my messages for, I don't consistently leave room for a Q&A. So what we decided we'd do is uh, periodically, we're testing this here, periodically uh, taking uh, a weekend and just turning the whole thing into a Q&A. Yeah. And, and, and take all the questions that people have been asking or that will be asked this morning and to uh, um, then just uh, address those. We are, the, the church body here within this church has this kind of a mindset that, um, well, you know, we, we've taught this before. We give a structure to the way we do faith. Uh, at the center of the thing is, is, of course, Jesus Christ. He's the center of everything. He, all of our life and all of our self-worth, our identity, our self-esteem is to be based on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We, we, we establish, everything is to, to be rooted in him. Paul, at one point, says, I, I, don't, I don't know anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love that statement. Second uh, Corinthians 2.2. This is beautiful. And so he's the only, that, that, that's the all-important center. Now, some people make every belief they have that important. It's like a house of cards theology where everything depends on everything else. If you knock one card out, the whole house comes down. And these are folks who then, you know, they have to get life from being right about everything. And they can be rather unpleasant to be around, especially when you disagree with them. We encourage people to, to, instead of having a house of cards theology, to rather have a concentric circle theology. So Jesus is at the center. But just outside of that center are what the church has called the dogmas of the church, or these are the foundational beliefs that define orthodoxy, or what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. These are the dogmas of the church, the things that are expressed in the early ecumenical creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and things of that sort. Okay, foundational dogmas, things that all Christians have always believed. Outside of that is another ring. Uh, slightly less important, and th- these are what's often referred to as the doctrines of the church. Th- these are things about which churches have always disagreed to some degree. They're usually ways of interpreting dogmas. So everyone believes in providence, for example, but Calvinists and Arminians have different ways of working that belief out. Okay, so there, there's a, a, a diversity of, of views in, in terms of doctrine. And then on the outer circle are opinions. And these are just beliefs that people have you know, from time to time throughout church history, uh, but they've never been established as uh, an official belief of any church body. Opinions that, that folks have. And we all have a lot of different opinions. And we encourage people to, the, the closer you get to the center, the more important the thing is. And so the more important it is to be certain about it. But the farther away from the center you get, the less important it is. And, and we want to be a church body that really majors in the major, and the major of the majors is Jesus. Okay, we want to base everything on him. And then, but then to, to also be flexible as we get out into the realms of, of, of doctrine and especially of opinion. And we want to be a church body that's okay with asking questions and, and okay with disagreeing on things. Uh, I, I actually think that the, the, the different ways we look at things, to some degree that's a result of the fall, but to some degree that's, I, I think, an inbuilt thing. We're all individuals. We see things differently. Uh, we might like it if everyone would agree with us, uh, but it's just not going to happen. And I, part of the reason why I think that that is built into the nature of things is that if we all were of, of one opinion on everything, well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't force us to grow in love. Our diversity is what, is what makes us grow 
and, and to learn how to appreciate uh, folks who see things differently than you see them and to learn from one another and to have a love that transcends our, our uniformity, all right? So, so we really encourage questions. And so in this Q&A times, we, we, we say you can ask anything. Uh, now, Paul and I, uh, we may not be able to answer it. Uh, we got stumped last night. Someone asked us a question. We just totally drew, drew a blank. That happens sometimes. But since we don't get life from our, the rightness of our views, we are okay with that. Uh, but we do the best we can. Uh, Paul and I are both kind of geek heads who like to read a lot of books and study a lot. And we're teachers here at Woodland Hills Church and, and the leadership of Woodland Hills Church. So we just want to use this time to have teachings being pulled out of us. I think some of the best teaching comes not when you just give a message that you planned, but when people are pulling it out of you. All right. So we're going to have this Q&A time. Paul, will you come on up? Paul will be uh, helping me here and I'll be helping him. And we have Vanessa, the lovely Vanessa, who's helping us. She'll be answering, asking the questions. And uh, if you have uh, your phone, you can text in questions to this number. Uh, just type it in there, uh, thumb it in there, and uh, uh, they'll send it down to Vanessa. Or if you don't have uh, texting capacities, we have paper, uh, paper and pencils up here uh, beneath the two crosses up front. There's a table with paper and, p- and pencils, and also behind the camera, and then behind the sound booth. And uh, so if you get a question, you just go and write it up, and then just bring it up, right? right when we're talking, we're yapping, we won't even notice you. Uh, bring it up, give it to Vanessa. And we're going to try to get to as many questions as possible. Last week, last, uh, we got applauded last time because we got through 15 questions. So we have to keep our answers short and succinct, which, which is a challenge, especially for Paul. He's Mr. Yapville. But we're going to try to keep it short and succinct to the point. And so love this covenant, bro. All right. So we're going to take it away, Vanessa. Okay. You ready for your first question? I'm ready. You ready, Paul? I'm ready. We ready. You're born ready. All right. I have heard that Woodland Hills is an open theist church. Is this true, and what does that mean? I don't know. Ah. I'm, I'm stumped. An open what church? An open-minded church. Yeah. Greg and I have been doing theology over 20 years together, mm-hmm. and so much of, of our theological worldview we see the same, but um, there's, there's a couple things Greg's just wrong about. <laughs> Let's talk about one of those things this morning. Ah! Slap down. This, this actually is one, one thing we've differed on for, for years. Um, there, there was one, there's a beautiful moment in November 1998 in Florida. Oh, dude. You know, <laughs> almost saw Don't the even truth. go there. Don't and then, even. then it disappeared from him. But it was so, such a good moment. I was so dumbfounded by what you said. I paused and he took that as a victory. <laughs> <laughs> like, how could any rational person think that? He goes, yes, he got it. I got it. <laughs> well, open theism. So... There's a really complex question, set of questions around how does God relate to time? How does God and, and the whole time thing, however that relates, relate to human freedom? And when you put all that together, how in the world does God know what he knows about the future? And this has been a, a tough question that Christians have wrestled with for centuries. Um, there's, uh, we have a book out here that Greg and I are a part of that, there, that we put four views out there of, that have been proposed through church history. Uh, Greg holds to a view that commonly known as open theism, a pretty minority view in church history with regards to how many people have held Not it. Not as minority as some people think, though. Maybe it's not. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that later. And this is in the circle of opinion, by the way. Yeah, would you say it's opinion level? It's opinion level. Yeah. Which is interesting because some The people... right opinion level, but it's still opinion. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is when someone like Greg thinks this is an opinion level issue and other people think this is a dogma level issue then things can get pretty tense. And things did get tense uh, back in the late 90s um, when, when Greg had 
put his idea out there, and some people disagreed with that, and yeah, all of a sudden, angry. labels of heretic, and, and a lot of crazy stuff that really could have been, I think, dealt with in a, in a good, healthy dialogue. They're so mean. So, <laughs> they weren't. why don't you state, what, what is your view? Uh, the open view is just the belief that possibilities are real. That's it. If God creates free creatures, uh, free agents, then freedom means we can go this way or that way. And so it's possibly we might go this way, and possibly we might go that way. Possibilities are real. And God is omniscient. That's important to know because you always get some people accuse open theists of denying God's omniscience, that he's all-knowing. No, I believe God's all-knowing, absolutely. Everything that's real, he knows exactly as it is. It's just the belief that, that possibilities are part of, of what's real because God created the world of free agents. And so what God knows is, uh, some of what God knows is possible. The future is to some degree composed of possibility, which God can perfectly anticipate and have a response prepared for because he's infinitely intelligent. Uh, but the possibilities are real. And so people, some who have held a house of cards theology where everything's equally important have got very upset because they have not, they've always thought that the future facts are all out there from all eternity for God to know. And this was something new. And so some people got very upset about it. But open, but Woodland Hills is not an open theist church. Uh, it's a church that has open theism, uh, open theists, one of whom is the senior pastor. Uh, <laughs> but it's not like this is, uh, uh, how many times have you heard me preach on it from the pulpit? Explicitly none, uh, because it's not one of the things we want to rally around. Uh, it's a view that, that's out there. It can have, I think, some important ramifications and some issues, but, but in terms of how people live their life, it's pretty irrelevant. Everyone lives as an open theist, whether they are or not. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> if you attend Wood on the Hills, you probably should know enough about this that if someone says, oh no, you go to that church, <laughs> that's probably the issue they're talking about because this got a lot of publicity out there. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and, and to be able to say, you know, yeah, Greg holds this particular view, but the church is not an open theist church. We actually have a statement on this that says we hold no single position on this. Because probably in this room, there's, you know, at least three or four positions held amongst all of us. Uh, but it is a view. It's a view that uh, is interesting. And that Greg will finally repent of when he gets to heaven. <laughs> all right. All right. There you Next go. Next question. I am passionate about political issues, and I love Woodland Hills, but I wonder if you, Greg, think that Don't I belong me. here, and am I a Christian? The person, uh, wonder, I, I've been asked this a few times, um, and uh, yeah, so the person's wondering if they belong here, or if I even think they're a Christian. Here's the thing. I... I am passionate about, and this is a distinctive of Woodland Hills Church, that, that we are, the kingdom of God is radically different from every version of the kingdom of the world, every political system, every sociological system, every economic system, and that it's very important that we never fuse the two together. Uh, we have to keep, keep the kingdom holy, which means, the word holy means separate and distinct. So we're very passionate about that. Um, but people have political opinions. I mean, there are people who are passionate about voting and some who aren't. People who, some are passionate about getting involved in politics and, and, and some aren't. Uh, and that is one of the areas where we say everyone has to follow their conscience. So if, if a person, you know, I would, what I'd ask this person is, um, are they comfortable with us? Uh, because if they're comfortable with us, we're, I'm totally comfortable with them. Uh, you can be passionate about that. And that's fine. Bless you. Follow God's leading. You know, but I, I would give words of caution about don't get sucked in to the divisiveness of the thing. Don't ever Christian, Christianize your view, Christian your view as being the Christian view. There's always a temptation. 
we get so passionate about our, our own perspectives, we think, ah, this is how all Christians should vote, and therefore this is the Christian view. If you're really a Christian, you'll vote that way. I'd really encourage you, and the more passionate you are about that stuff, the easier it is to get sucked in. So I would warn the person, be careful about that. But having said that, you follow your conscience and, and do that. And so long as you don't fuse the kingdom to, to, together, uh, I'm happy you're here. Praise God and worship God with us. Amen. All right. If God created everything, who created God? <laughs> His mom. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. God. <laughs> and did he make a rock too big for him to? Um, th- you know, th- these sorts of questions, they're, they're, they're perennial, and, and folks have wrestled with them, and some use them. I know uh, this has been used by, um, by atheists, for example, as a, as a tough question that, that religious people just can't answer. Um, my own take on this question is this is sort of like asking the question, um, uh, well, roses are red. So, um, what color is middle C? You know, some things What's have color. C? Some things have middle C is a note. We'll tell oh, okay. about music oh, later. No. Oh. But but some things don't have color because of the nature of what they are. Um, some things need to be created, namely creatures, contingent creatures, creatures that could have been otherwise. That's all of us, angels, and everything that you see alive on planet Earth. But some things, namely eternal non-contingent necessary beings, which is what God would be if God exists, isn't tied into necessities of time or having to be created or things like that. So I would say it's a category confusion. It's a question that sounds like it makes sense until you realize that the kind of category of thing we're talking about, God, that if that kind of thing exists, wouldn't be the kind of thing by definition that requires a creator. That, that's how I come at it. I don't know if that's... Necessary non-contingent. Yeah. <laughs> necessary is, is something that could not be otherwise. Uh, contingent is something that could be otherwise. So necessary non-contingent is a tautology. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, For emphasis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rhetorical redundancy. <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- think about this. Think about this. If you agree that you can't get se- something from nothing, right? There was nothing else and there's something. You, if you agree to that... Which is a basic scientific principle. Well, it's also a basic logical principle, I, I would argue, but uh, it is a scientific principle. It also feels really you can't You can't get something from nothing. Um, and, and if you agree that there is something now, and apparently you do because you're listening to this, right? So <laughs> there's something now, you can't get something from nothing, which means there must have always been something. So something, whatever you believe, there must be something that never began, Right? And if you look at the material world, it's not a very good candidate for that. Because <laughs> every, everything we know about matter, energy, is that it dissipates. It tends towards randomness. It's running down. So something must have always been, and the world is not a good, very good candidate for it. And so that itself tells you that there must be something very different from this world that never began. And that's what Christians have always affirmed to be God. All right. Amen. <laughs> Can Anabaptists be cops and or soldiers? I always say, ooh, ah, ooh. Well, here's, yeah, in the Anabaptist tradition, there's been discussions on this, um, and there's been some diversity of opinion on it. Um, The principle that that Anabaptists have always rallied around, uh, and I I think it's just so central to the gospel, uh, is that Jesus calls on us to practice nonviolence. 
Um, and he never, never conditions that, never qualifies that. It doesn't make, it doesn't fit our common sense. Uh, but I suggest that's because our common sense is jaded by a very violent world where it's normal to us. Um, but uh, Jesus and Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, they, they both teach a, a radical form of, of following Jesus' example uh, as he went to the cross and could have used all this power to defend himself and would have been a just defense. And, and Peter tried to, to defend him with a sword, but he rebukes uh, 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 Peter's uh, doing that. And, and the fact that that's set up as an example means that that's, we can't just say, oh, that was just for Jesus but not for us. No, that was the example for us. And Anabaptists have always affirmed that. Now, that's the principle. Now, how it applies to our life, that's where the, some of the diversity comes from. Um, and I, rather than, than, my own conviction is this, that people are all at different places in our, our walk with God. Um, and God doesn't shoot at everything at once. He, he, he takes one issue at a time and, and walks us through that. And so given that we're at different places in our walk with God, I, I, I'm a firm believer to, as much as possible, preach the principle and maybe give examples of how it applies, but to leave a lot of room for diversity so the Holy Spirit applies it to our life as, as, uh, as he wills. Um, I, I personally don't know how anybody can be a Jesus follower and understand his teachings on nonviolence and be a soldier in the army. But I also know folks here at Wilderness Church who have done that. And I've said, they've asked me the question, and I'm giving them the answer I, I gave, I'm giving you right now. And that is, here's the teaching. Uh, you know, I, I, if you invite me in, and we'll have a conversation about how you do that in your head, you know, if you want to have feedback on that. But I don't have to understand how you do it uh, to trust that you're doing it in good faith. I will trust that you have a follower of Jesus, and, and I don't get this, this point here, but I'm not going to question the sincerity of your faith uh, because you disagree with me on this. Here's the principle, and we're just going to keep on teaching this principle, uh, you know, and, and, and let people uh, be applying that, and let the Holy Spirit be applying that to our lives as he sees fit. Amen. <laughs> Why? I get an A minus on that one. <laughs> I got a crowd here. Oh, that, that's a pretty good answer. Yeah. Wait for the right. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> All right, sorry. Why did God love only the Jews and not the Gentiles? I was told that he didn't start loving Gentiles until Jesus came. Mm. Mm. Good question. Mm. One, one way to think of the Bible, the, the, the narrative of, of Scripture, uh, from the creation to the end of time when God wraps everything up, is to think of it in terms of the six major covenants that God has initiated with human beings. Five in, in the Old Testament and then the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And if you're not careful, if you don't, if, in fact, if you don't kind of trace the covenantal development, you could sort of open your Bibles to much of the Bible. The majority of the, the text is actually Old Testament text in terms of, of, of how much content there is, you know, 39 books. And you could think that God has this amazing sort of uh, uh, favoritism to the Jews because he's working with them through so much of that historical period. But it's really important to notice that the first two covenants were not to the Jews, but were one with Adam, which simply means human being, the first human, and then second with Noah. And the covenants with, with Adam and Noah weren't, weren't to Jews yet because there were new, no Jews yet until Abraham had came. He was the third covenant. So I think the picture is that God comes uh, in, into uh, human history by, by trying to embrace all of humanity. The fall happens. Uh, he tries it again after the flood, trying to embrace all of humanity. Sin keeps shutting God down. We keep breaking relationship with God. And so what God does as a, 
a strategy to embrace all the world again is he starts with Abraham and starts to grow uh, from a person to, a, to a, a tribe to a nation of Israel. But the point is for them to be priests to all the nations. He said to Abraham, I'm, I'm going to bless you so that you will bless all the families of the earth. God's heart has always been for all people. This is just another strategy. And finally in Jesus Christ, Jesus opens it up to all people once again. So I think God's heart, as we see through the covenants, has always been for all people, even though for a a series of covenants, it's a a Jewish uh, moment in order to use the Jewish people to be be the uh, conduit through which he reaches the world. Beautiful. All right, I have two questions that kind of go together, so I'm going to give them both to you. So the first is that Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says that Christians were predestined in Christ from the foundation of the world. Doesn't that pretty much cancel your view that people choose whether they'll be saved or not? And if Jesus wants everyone to be saved, this is the second question, why does Jesus refer to Judas as the one who was predestined to hell? Good question. You want to take Judas? Uh, Tough question. Let's divide and conquer. You want to take Ephesians or Judas? Do you want to take Ephesians? I'll or, take Ephesians. Yeah, you, you do the corporate, I'll, I'll do Judas. Take away. Me? Yeah. All right. So in Ephesians, uh, really good question. Um, and Greg mentioned earlier when he was talking about dogma, doctrine, opinion, as one example is that all Christians, uh, through, through time and place, have believed in God's providence. That's a dogma. But how, when we start theorizing about how does God's providence work, providence, of course, being God's uh, sovereignty, his, his control over the creation, some have believed that, that, that the way God is providentially active is that God ordains all things, including who will be saved. And if that's your, your view, if that's how you see things, and you can use the word election or predestination to say God's chosen, who will be in and who will be out. And you might turn to a passage like Ephesians 1 that says, in the, in the, pa- in the, in the space of a few verses, 1 to 14 there, uh, a number of times the words election or predestination or terminology like that crop up pretty frequently. What's important to notice, we would say, is that in that passage, another phrase turns up ten times, I think, in 14 verses. In Christ you were predestined. In Christ you were called. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so, what what does it mean to be in Christ? Because that seems to be the key to Paul's uh, answer here of what it means to be elect. What we have a strong belief in is that what Paul is alluding to is that a corporate category. That those who are in Christ are predestined to be what God has called us to be. Whoever, is, is, whoever says yes to Jesus is now part of the elect bride of Christ, and they will, you will become what God's called you. But it's an open question as to who is going to say yes to Jesus and become part of the elect corporate group. So, for example, we could say, uh, to use an analogy from, from our experience here, that everyone in this room was elected and predestined to hear what you're hearing this morning. That's true, because we chose at least four weeks ago to have this sermon series, so this Q&A series, and then we knew we'd do it this morning. And so we knew four weeks ago what you'd be hearing if you were here. But no one forced you to be here. Each of you freely walked in, but once you freely walked in, now you are part of the elect group to hear this Q&A series. It's, it's a corporate category. You're part of the elect group to hear this. <laughs> and this is important to notice, because I, we believe that a lot of the debate on this in uh, the last several hundred years in America has been tainted by individualism, yeah. which rarely thinks about us as corporate entities, but thinks of us as individuals. You've got to get thinking corporately to get back into the biblical world. 
is, is our conviction. With regard to Judas, um, uh, the, the, it's, it's in John 13, and the Greek literally has uh, son of perdition. That's the, the literal meaning, a son of perdition or son of damnation. And the term son of there was just a Hebraic idiom uh, for uh, has the nature of, has the nature of. And so Jesus is saying that, you know, of those that were given to him, he's lost none except the one who is now the son of perdition. doesn't say anything about being predestined there. Um, the, the idea that Judas was predestined from the foundation of the world to betray Jesus and be lost, uh, I, I, you know, I, if, if I believe that, I feel so sorry for the guy. It's like, man, that, that would just suck. To, you know, right from the get-go. It's, and then that's, uh, some hold, that's true for the majority of human beings. You're born in this world, you know, have been predestined. If you weren't part of the elect, well, then you're predestined to go to hell. It's like, whoa. Um, but the Greek just simply says that he, ha- he has the nature of one who is uh, it's, it's fitting for damnation or, or condemnation. And it was not that God gave him that nature. He, by his own choices, uh, acquired that nature. And in fact, I, I'm convinced, though this is in the opinion category, uh, I'm inclined to think anyways that uh, even when Jesus called him, initially, there was the possibility of Judas uh, being a faithful disciple. Um, Jesus would have found some other way to get to the cross. The way it went down isn't the way it had to go down. Uh, And so Jesus calls him in good faith. He's part of the disciples who go out and do all this other kind of stuff. But out of his own decisions, he formed a kind of a character that he got to the point where he's no longer fit for the kingdom. He was fit for destruction. And that's what Jesus refers to. But it wasn't predestined. It wasn't God's doing. It was Judas' own doing. Ready? I believe in evolution and the Big Bang Theory. Can I still be a Christian? (laughs) You're lost forever. You're predestined. (laughs) We certainly hope so. If you're gone, I'm gone. Okay, let's just put that down. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, you know, here's the thing. Uh, There are uh, at least four different ways. Paul and I have written on this in a book called Across the Spectrum get out there in the gathering area, where we lay out all the different views that, that evangelicals have disagreed on. And in this whole creation-evolution debate, uh, there, is, uh, there are four major views, uh, and there are some minor ones that we didn't mention, uh, different ways that people have of, of integrating the biblical account with the creation account. One of them is to take the Genesis 1 story very, very literally, and then to insist that the earth is only 10,000 years old, uh, and that the evolution is just wrong, and the, the scientists are all, you know, maybe there's a conspiracy going on or what have you. That's one of the views, but there are other ways of looking at it. I, myself, as I've looked at this, um, have come to the conclusion that, that, um, that I don't think atheistic evolution happened. I don't think we're just products of time and chance. Uh, That would really contradict the biblical teaching that we're made in the image of God. We're made on purpose. Uh, But the way God created us, uh, it seems to me the evidence suggests that he used some kind of evolutionary process. Um, And um, uh, that doesn't change at all the fact that we're in the image of God. Um, it's about how you look at the, uh, the scientific evidence, how you integrate it with the scripture, and there is, so I, we think it's very important not to make that into a dogma. Same thing with the Big Bang Theory. That God created the world? Absolutely. That's been a dogma of the church from day one. The, the world's not a co-eternal, it was created uh, by God. But how he did it, and how long it took, um, is just not uh, a question that we think is, is uh, of, of high importance. I actually find this idea of the earth being, or the, the cosmos being billions of years old and this long, slow process by which human beings came around, to me, it, it, it makes God more majestic. I, I, I think it glorifies God more. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't rule out you know, somebody who holds that view. Amen. 
Why does the Bible not talk a lot about Jesus' childhood or young adulthood? Good question. Um, I mean, the Gospel of Mark starts right away with his baptism. You know, he's around 30 at that point. Uh, Gospel of John, same thing. You really only have Matthew and Luke. You've got a couple opening chapters of infancy narratives. Um, in Luke, you've got one incident of age 12, and then Luke basically summarizes almost 30 years of Jesus' life by saying, and he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. One verse uh, summary of 30 years. Um, I think what this suggests is a couple of things. One, uh, what we know is that the Gospels, while not reducible to Greco-Roman biography, are very similar to Greco-Roman biography, a, a, a type of genre in the ancient world, biography uh, in, in the Greco-Roman Empire. And um, for Greco-Roman biography, unlike biographies of our time and place, getting every single moment of a person's life was not important. Rather, what was important was capturing the essential character of a person. And so you could leave out large chunks of their life as long as you got the parts of their life that showed their character. And in that sense, the Gospels do fit a pattern of, of ancient biography, where they're not concerned to get every, every stage of Jesus' life in, but rather you get the picture of who and what kind of person this was. And of course, where you get that in is predominantly in Jesus' ministry, life, teachings, death, and resurrection. Um, now, Luke and, and, and Matthew do give us some, some infancy information, um, and it's really important information because it lets us know that Jesus had a unique beginning. Uh, but again, uh, the point of the Gospels is not to be like our modern-day biographies, ca capturing all elements of, of one's life. No, yeah, but the evangelists are evangelists. Uh, they're called the four evangelists. And uh, those, the, the, the biography they put out there, the, the limited information they put out there, is in the form of a sermon. Uh, they reflect history, but not history for history's sake or satisfying anyone's curiosity or anything like that. They're, they're presenting Jesus that they want people to believe in. And so they're going to present uh, the, the, the aspect of Jesus' life that is most pertinent to our salvation and to have a relationship with him and, and things of that sort. So that's another reason why they're still they're very selective in terms of what they include and uh, exclude. If you're stuck in a sin that you know is wrong, if you die, will you go to hell? Yeah, Greg. You probably have more experience with this than I do, Paul. So why don't you go ahead and ask <laughs> well, I probably shouldn't have shared that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I would therefore be so biased in my answer, I shouldn't answer this question. <laughs> Paul, go. I hope so. <laughs> no, you know, a lot depends here. Everything, in fact, depends on how you frame the question. Uh, and I suspect that the question, and I've, I've shared this quite a bit because I think it's so foundational. But um, the, the, the way a lot, a lot of folks. In, in Christian circles especially frame that kind of question is in a, a court of law context. And by that I mean we, we envision God as the judge and we're the defendants and Jesus is our lawyer and salvation is a matter of, of, of just being acquitted. And uh, then the question becomes, will I lose my acquittal if I am stuck in a sin pattern that I can't get out of? Um, uh, the other way of framing the question, which is I think a far more biblical way, uh, it, it certainly encompasses more of the, the, the biblical material than the, the legal court of room way, is as a covenant, as a marriage sort of relationship. Because that's how the Bible talks about our relationship with, with, with God. And to be saved isn't to be acquitted at the end of time, or it includes that, but that's a byproduct. It's rather to be involved in this relationship where God's pouring his life into you 
and um, uh, you're being transformed out of this relationship. It's a love relationship that God wants with us, not some kind of a legal kind of a thing. And in that framework, then, the question becomes, uh, if I'm stuck in a sin pattern, uh, can I kill the relationship? Or will, will God quit wanting to relate to me? And um, I, I, I suggest to you that if your heart, it's like, it's like picture a marriage. You know, if there's a, uh, an area in a person's life, in, a, in one of the spouse's life where they keep falling short, is the spouse going to divorce them because there is this one area where they're falling short? Um, I don't think so. Now, it could be, if it's something real serious, it could be such that it would damage the relationship. Uh, but that's not about the spouse rejecting the person. That's about them destroying the relationship. But what would rather more likely happen is that out of the love that the one spouse has for the other, they'd be helping them to get over that thing. It's like, you know, no, look, we're married, and I know you love me and I love you, so let's work on this. And let's be transformed out of this. Amen. See, in a court of law context, they're, they're we're thinking, we're asking like, about how much can we get away with? You know, yeah. Can I keep this little sin of mine and still not lose my acquittal? But in a marriage paradigm, we're not thinking how much can we get away with. We're thinking how can I get rid of the obstacles that are keeping me from having as full and loving and joyful a relationship with my Lord as I can possibly have. Amen. Amen. Um, we actually have a lot of questions that are related to this one. So I'm just going to ask this one, but it hits on a few. If someone is of a different religion, but they are a good person, will they go to hell after they die? Is it plausible that someone could be saved after they die? If so, how? Your turn. My turn. <laughs> the, um, there's a whole nest of issues around here. Uh, what about other religions? Um, another related issue, what about those who live and die and never hear the gospel? Uh, and, and are they just out of luck? Uh, these have been questions that the Christian tradition has wrestled with from, from the second century onward. We have Justin Martyr in the second century saying uh, in, in one, a piece of writing um, that he, he can't believe that God will in the end send Socrates to hell. Because as, if, if I know anything about Socrates, he was searching for truth, but he was born 500 years before Jesus, or however many, a couple centuries before Jesus, uh, he just didn't have a chance, and, and God will not let him slip into hell on a technicality. So, so Christians have been wrestling with these sorts of questions forever. Um, I think what's absolutely essential, what, what is dogma here, is that whatever, whatever is, is going on with these, these complex questions, what's very clear is Jesus is the only Savior. Um, the, 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 the disease we, we call sin that, that touches every human, every human being only has one cure, and that is the, 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 the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, how that gets applied, let's say, to someone who's born in a culture that never hears the gospel, that uh, raises this question. Can, can someone be healed by Jesus, be saved by Jesus in that sense, without knowing that it's Jesus who's healing them or saving them? C.S. Lewis, in, in his famous uh, Narnia trilogy, ends... Uh, the last battle, the last book there, by suggesting perhaps that yes, that's possible, that God can look into someone's heart who doesn't know about Jesus and can say, that's the kind of heart seeking the kind of truth and seeking after me. They just don't know my name. I can apply the blood of Jesus to them. But only God knows hearts like that, right? And so I say, let's let God be God. Let's uh, hope for the best, but let's bring the name of Jesus to as many people as possible to let them be healed now. I, I would just add, I, I share that same hope. Um, I don't know, who knows the details for sure on how this is going to happen. 
Uh, but, but you see this strong emphasis on Jesus being the only way, the truth, and life. We've got to preach Jesus, and there's no assurance apart from Jesus. But on the other hand, you find this, this uh, uh, all-encompassing nature of God. Paul, in, in Acts 17, I just love this passage where he says that God's been working through all the times and the seasons of the dividing of the nations. And, and he, while well, you know, kings go to war and nations divide over a lot of you know, reasons, God is always at work to get people to grope for him and possibly find him, mm-hmm. even though he's not far from any of us. And so that just tells me, and this is just like the God we see revealed in Jesus Christ. He's always out there in every human heart getting people to hunger for him and to look for him insofar as their culture and, and all the other con- things in, in their life allows for it. Um, and and that's, you know, that's the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. As I look at th- this God who gives his life for every human being, I, I just can't believe that, that God would damn someone uh, based on an accident. Uh, you know, who, who happened to witness to them? You know, were they plausible or not? Did they have bad breath or not? Or what country were they born in? Who raised them? When? All those are the things that are outside of anyone's control. God sees the heart. Uh, it, it says in First Samuel that we judge on the outside, but God, the Lord Almighty, he sees the inside. And he's the, that's why he alone is able to judge anybody. Uh, that's totally out of our court. We surrender it all to God. Amen. Well, there are so many good questions. I actually can't believe how quickly our time went. No. So we're only going to have time for one more question. Well, I want to get this commercial. We've got... <laughs> okay. I, I, we are... We, We've intentionally not re-asked questions in all three of these services. Um, and so we're going to post uh, on the, uh, online all three of these Q&A sessions. And so we encourage you to download that so you can benefit from what was said uh, on the other two services as well. Yes. Okay. So this is going to be the last question for this, but do download those other sermons. All right. The last question is, I was baptized at a different church a long time ago. Do I need to be baptized again? How do I know that I'm born again? I'll take the baptism, you take the born again. Since we have baptisms coming up, and um, we we at Woodland Hills see baptism uh, as the sign of the new covenant. Uh, Every time God creates a covenant with human beings, uh, a new covenant that he makes, he he has a sign, uh, something that he picks that's visible, uh, and and that... um, that uh, is an, the baptism and initiation into that covenant. So we have kind of two symbols in the Christian faith. Uh, initiation symbol of baptism into the faith, and then the ongoing sign of the covenant, the, uh, the sharing communion of the Lord's Supper. And so baptism is a visible, uh, experiential, symbolic uh, activity by which we symbolize our death to uh, the old ways of life in the, in the, in the, in the uh, kingdom of darkness and, and new life into the kingdom of God. Um, now, that's a dogma, I think. I don't know any Christians who, want to, who don't want to be baptized, but there's differences of doctrinal opinion on who should be baptized, when should we be baptized, how should we baptize them. Infants, believers, etc. Um, we're convinced that uh, the sign of the covenant is for people who've made a conscious decision to enter into that covenant. Um, if you've been baptized as an infant, um, we see that sort of on the lines of, a, of an arranged marriage. Uh, parents arranged your marriage to Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that even in arranged marriage cultures, when a marriage is arranged, the time comes when the two children who are now grown up and going to actually do the marriage have to confirm or uh, affirm uh, publicly that this is their choice. Um, that sometimes in, in certain denominations happens in eighth grade in confirmation 
uh, sorts of settings, which might be good, but other times it's sort of just what you do when you're in eighth grade. Uh, and you go with the rest of the kids. We believe there needs to be a conscious public, or should be a conscious public affirmation uh, of that. So we encourage people that if you've been baptized as an infant to really significantly consider being baptized as an adult to, to affirm what your parents said about you. On the other hand, we have had a few people who've said, you know, we just feel in our conscience we can't do that. Well, look, if God's leading you to Woodland Hills to be part of our church, but you feel that would violate your conscience to be rebaptized, then never violate your conscience. Um, but all things being equal, we, we really encourage people to, to consider that. Uh, the person may, however, have been asking, if I, was, if I was baptized as an adult in a different church, I need to get rebaptized because you're coming to Woodland Hills. Because there's some places that practice baptism as sort of uh, the in- initiation into, that, into their church. And uh, we don't believe that uh, baptism is about church membership. It's about entering into the new covenant. And if you've already done that, then uh, you don't need to, to, to redo that because you, you've changed churches. Some people have had questions like, well, at the time I did it for the wrong reasons, wrong motivations, I was all screwed up or whatever. Uh, did, did it count? And on this, I would just say, and I think we in general would, would, would say, pray about it. Follow your conscience. Talk to a community friends uh, to see whether that was valid or not and, uh, and uh, respond accordingly. How do you know that you're uh, born again? I'll just end with this. Um, it's one thing to say that if you're born again, you will have certain fruit flow out of you. And that is true. If you, if you, if you're, if you got new life in Christ, there'll be, uh, not unambiguously, not, not always consistently, but there'll be some evidence of it. Just like if you're alive biologically, there's going to be some evidence of it. So there'll, there'll, be, there'll be life there. But that's different than saying you should look for that as confirmation that you're born again. Because those things can ebb and flow. Um, he, on this, Luther, it was just so right on. He, 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 he nailed this. Uh, when when, when uh, he was talking about uh, what is it to be born again, although he didn't use that exact terminology, uh, he always came back to this simple thing of trusting in Jesus. I'm not going to look into myself. I'm not going to look at my, how I feel, how I feel, because that can go up and down. I'm not going to look at my behavior as though that's some kind of a litmus test, because that can go up and down. Uh, there will be behavior coming out of it, but th- that we shouldn't be always testing that. Our focus should not be on ourselves. Like, how am I doing? Our focus should be on Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, if you surrender to Jesus and trust in Jesus, <clears throat> you're born again. Uh, whatever you feel, whatever your head's telling you, whatever. Now it's just a matter of growing into that and being transformed by that and integrating that truth and your new identity in Christ into every area of your life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. All Amen. right. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Paul. You guys are great. Yeah. Really good questions. I, I so appreciate having an environment where it's okay just to put it on the table. You know, it, it, truth has nothing to fear. Let's just get all the questions out there. and uh, that, that, That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. All right. I'm going to close in prayer. As I do, I would like to ask the prayer uh, team to come up here. And if you are here this morning and have any need whatsoever, uh, whether it's physical, financial, relationships, spiritual, whatever, I encourage you to come up and uh, pray with these folks. They're also available all throughout the worship service. Um, because we want, we want to be a church that prays for one another. Uh, so feel free to, at the end of the service to come up and get prayer for whatever need you have. So Abba Father, we uh, again thank you for bringing us together, uh, for having an environment where uh, we can just sincerely seek you and as, where it's okay to have questions and we don't have to be certain about everything or pretend anything or perform anything or fake anything. We can just be real people who know a real Savior and we thank you for that, God. As we leave this place, we ask that the Holy Spirit would seal on our hearts uh, all that we need to have sealed on our hearts uh, to carry out your work, God. Bring to remembrance everything we need to remember. And um, Lord, just be flowing through us as we leave this place, flow through us. 
in your love and in your power to touch every person we come in contact with. We want to be conduits of your love in this world to expand your kingdom in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and love on the world.